Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And And this this is is The Science of Motherhood. Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 32. I am your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Petucci, is wrapping up her maternity leave at the moment with her beautiful boy, and she will be back very, very soon. We are the co-founders of the postpartum doula village, Fill Your Cup, here in Melbourne and Hobart, where we are Australia's first biochemist-led postpartum doula village. What does that mean? <laughs> well, Mika and I, back in the day, were trained as biochemists. And so we have a PhD in biochemistry and we are insanely passionate about women's health and in particular, postpartum nutrition. And that is essentially the core of Fill Your Cup. We have curated a wonderful, wonderful menu for postpartum mamas, so those who have just birthed their beautiful babies, and we provide in-home care to you in the comfort of your own home. And we don't do this alone. We have a team of wonderful women who assist us both in Melbourne and Hobart, So hello to Amanda and Georgie and Caitlin and Samara and Kate. Kate is our newest addition. She helps me here in Hobart looking after all the mummies of southern Tasmania. And what do we do as postpartum doulas? A lot of people ask that. You know what? It's a lot of listening and it's birth debriefs and it's cooking up beautiful, nourishing food and it's holding your baby while you go have a warm, hot shower or a nap during the day where you don't have to worry about, oh, my goodness, is that my baby crying out? You know those phantom cries when you're in the shower? I honestly didn't think that that was a real thing until it happened. And it does. It happens. So as I said, we provide fantastic in-home care to sleep-deprived and hungry mamas. That is us in a nutshell. So if you are pregnant or you think that you need some more support with your newborn, if you don't have that village around you, whether it be partners heading back to work or you don't have family and friends who are close by who are able to assist you on those daily activities of tidying up around the house and making a nice, beautiful hot lunch and things like that, please feel free to reach out to us. We service most of Melbourne and a little bit of Geelong as well. And as I said, Southern Tasmania as well. So pop over to our website at ifillyourcup.com and check out our offerings and you can see all of our beautiful doula village there and let's get you back on track. Let's get you restored and replenished 
and recharged because we weren't meant to do this by ourselves, mamas. Absolutely not. We needed that village and that's where an FYC postpartum doula is there to help you out. So another part of our support system, because we need support as well as doulas, is a wonderful resource that all of our doulas are trained in and that is the Possums Program. And we identified very early on that as doulas, we're fantastic with that kind of practical and emotional in-home care offering. But, you know, we've got the basics of feeding, both breastfeeding and bottle feeding and, you know, some possible guides and support around sleep. But Mika and I both worked out quite quickly that, you know, we're not lactation consultants. That's out of our scope. We're not sleep consultants or sleep specialists. That's, again, out of our scope. So we needed to obtain a resource that we trusted and that was evidence-based and had the same mission and values as Fill Your Cup. And we came across Dr. Pamela Douglas's book, The Little Discontented Baby Book, and I read this after I had my baby, well and truly after, like <laughs> talking like two years after. And it is one of those moments in time where you read something or you hear something and you just think to yourself, oh, gosh, I wish I had read this before I had my baby. And I remember reading Pam's book for the first time and, you know, getting quite emotional and a bit teary reading it because this book was one of the first resources I had ever come across where it wasn't full of guidelines and shoulds and should nots. It was about the understanding the physiological development of a baby, of an infant. And it takes you through feeding and sleep and also behaviour. And the premise around possums is, I guess, understanding the things that you can control and the things that you can't. And a lot of it we can't. We just cannot control it. But we can understand why our children are doing the things that they're doing. And I think as someone who has an A-type personality, as I do, and I've been very vocal about this, and you can learn all about it (laughs) in episode three of the podcast around my birth story, is it was very difficult for me to let go of control and understand that my daughter, Eva, was in fact a human being and not a robot. And therefore, feeding schedules, sleep schedules and things like that, perhaps weren't going to resonate very well with her. And one of the things that I love about possums is that it just takes the pressure off the parents and in particular I would say, you know, the primary caregiver, the mother, and gives you permission and an opportunity to just enjoy the moment as it is 
to not necessarily put in a feeding program and a sleep program because you need to understand, for example, and we talk about this in the podcast, you'll hear about this, when it comes to sleep, there is a spectrum and it is it, all, the, all the babies are normal on this spectrum. Some children require seven hours of sleep in a 24-hour period and some require 17 hours in a 24-hour period. And that is both in those instances, it's normal. And it's just understanding that, you know, wherever your child is on that spectrum is normal. And that is something that I really suffered with, with Eva, particularly sleep, and it caused a lot of anxiety. And so to come full circle, having a resource like Pam's book, I really wish that I was armed with that knowledge. And that is what this whole podcast is about. It is about arming yourself with knowledge, being educated, being empowered by experts like Pam. And you will hear she is so qualified <laughs> to write this book, to lead the Possums program. She's a GP, she is a lactation consultant, she is a researcher, and that is one of the things that we really, really love about possums and resonate so highly with her. It's not only the fact that she's writing these papers, like continually writes papers, um, she is in there doing the research. She is at the cutting edge of what is going on and it is our job <laughs> as podcast hosts, and this is the premise around our entire podcast, The Science of Motherhood, is to bridge the gap between the research and the people that really need it. And that is you. That is you. And so it is an absolute pleasure to have someone like Pam on the podcast. She was on episode 13 of The Science of Motherhood and we spoke at length about feeding and colic and reflux and I knew that we were going to run out of time. Um, so I invited her back for a part two because the feedback that we got from all of you was just astounding. You guys loved that episode. It is our second most downloaded episode just and so it, I know that it's recommended by a lot of lactation consultants in their, like, you know, top five episodes and resources to check out when it comes to feeding. So it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Pamela Douglas, the medical director, general practitioner, lactation consultant and founder of Possums back on to the podcast. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pamela Douglas. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Renee. And it's a great pleasure to be here with you again. Yes. So a few things have changed since we've last spoken. I've moved to Tassie, hence why I'm wearing like a ah, bit of I'm about to walk the three capes down there. Are you? 
end of this month. Oh, mm. I haven't done that yet. But I've beautiful heard Tasmania. I know. I heard it's magical. And for all those playing at home, Pam was on episode 13 of our podcast and she was talking about breastfeeding and reflux and colic. And as I said at the time, I always knew that we were going to run out of time before we ran out of topics, which is why we have you back to talk about a few other things. But first off the bat, I just wanted to say a big congratulations to you and the team at Possums. You have just launched Milk and Moon, which That's is right. fact check me, but it's like a almost like a rebrand of the beautiful parents bundle at Possums. Is that right? Well, that's true, Renee. Parents could buy a bundle, which was the Possum's Baby and Toddler Sleep Program, the Breastfeeding Self-Help Program, and then access to the Parent Hub. They could buy that as a bundle or separately. Mm. But we, we've we responded really to requests to, to actually have it all integrated and, and more user-friendly, really. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we've upgraded the content. So Milk and Moon Babies.com is our parent-facing brand, I suppose, but our parents facing resource through which, you know, a parent can access everything that we do. Mm-hmm. So can come into the online parent community, the, the parent hub, which um, I understand is is treasured actually by parents in those first months and even couple of years of life so they they can access that in fact now just while I am updating you now our parent hub is actually overseen by our own perinatal mental health project manager and health professional Caroline Martin Mm -hmm. so it's facilitated by trained parent mentors under Caroline's overriding supervision Although Ashley Linus, of course, has been our highly treasured Parent Hub coordinator for a very long time and is continuing on a number of hours a week with us as well. So, yeah, so everything's all rolled in one. It's it's one of those um, contemporary systems for conveying information, conveying resources that's really nicely ordered. And I'm really glad you like it because we we love it. So it's, <laughs> so it's really nice. I'm so glad you say that, Renee. It's so, I love this resource so much that every single one of our Fill Your Cup mummers, they get access to this. We get them a membership because it's so So nice. Yes, it's 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 a really easy platform to use. And the things that our mummers love about it is the fact that it's evidence-based yeah. They're not slipping down like a Google rabbit hole of like yes. crazy yes. information, which inevitably raises anxiety, raises, you know, mum guilt and, oh, my gosh, oh, why yes. is my child not doing this or why are they doing this? And it's a beautiful resource where they can come to, they can learn through the videos, which I think yes. a lot of people are visual learners, particularly, you know, with breastfeeding. I don't I don't know how many people could just read off like a book as to how to do yes, something like that. Yes. And our mummers just love it. I love it. All of our doulas in our FYC doula village are trained 
so they've all got access to it so they can help support mums through the program as well. So, yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you and say Milk and Moon is just a dream. (laughs) Thanks, Renee. That is so lovely to hear. And, of course, it's been a big team effort here behind the scenes. I can imagine. Huge, actually. So, yeah, well, you you would understand how these projects are always so much bigger than you think. Yeah. And the, the intention is to keep developing it too. I've got content that I'll just keep feeding in. So... Well, I'm just that that actually really warms my heart, Renee. So thank you. That's a really lovely because because you know it's so much so much a labor of love, really. For, yeah, for, absolutely. For and you all. can tell, you um, can absolutely tell. So yeah, I think it, it complements your book really well, which is another one of our resources that we kind of you know steer people towards. Because a lot of the questions that we get from our mamas are around is this normal? Yes. And to enter in like whatever phrase it is that you want to. And it's just like, well, you know, we're all human beings and there's a bell curve and your baby fits somewhere on that bell curve. And if you'd like to learn more about that and how that all works, go read Pam's book. And for anyone who's hiding under a rock and hasn't read Pam's book yet, the discontented little baby book, please go and grab a copy. It definitely changed my world because I was like, having so many aha moments and also that it just took a weight off my shoulders around let's just enjoy newborn life instead of stressing about that. And I want to talk about that in detail a little bit further. Absolutely. Absolutely. In particular, sleep. Pam, we're going to talk about sleep today. We're going to talk about sensory kind of and and boredom, which I think is something that we don't kind of zone in on a lot. And then I want to pull it all together because I read a blog post last week that you wrote and I want your, I guess, we'll wrap it up with some final comments around how you think we can be supporting our mamas a little bit better at the moment. Yeah. So let's kick off with sleep. I'm happy to be very... (laughs) Such a a big and 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 challenging topic. (laughs) (laughs) I've been very vocal about the fact that you know, when I had my daughter four and a half years ago, I was very comfortable in the beginning with this concept, which I didn't realize what it was at the time, but catnapping. I thought, oh, okay, she sleeps for 45 minutes at a time. And then we just move about our business and what have you. And then I kind of mentioned it in passing to another person and they put the fear of God into me and they were like, oh no, you have to get that sorted out quick. And I was like, oh, really? Why? Oh, well, you know, babies don't know how to sleep properly and you've got to teach them and they've got to learn and you should really get a sleep consultant in. And I had no idea what was going on. And I instantly Mm. had that mum guilt of, oh, my gosh, my baby's broken. Oh, Mm. I I have to do something because if I'm seen not to be doing something, then I'm going to be looked upon as a bad mother. And so we engaged a sleep consultant, Mm. which in hindsight, for me personally, it was the worst thing that we could have done because I'm a type A personality. I like to be in control of situations and I also have mm, probably a bit of an OCD tendency as well. And I was fixated on the minutes and the hours that she was sleeping because the program 
was very regimented and it said they must sleep for this amount of time and, and then you need to do this and then you need to do that. So, yeah, go, Pam. <laughs> Shall I jump in there? Because I'd like to say that that's a kind of normal response. The response that you had to the information that you were receiving through what was at the time a trusted source is kind of telling you what you need to do to be a really good mum, to do the right thing by your bubby so that you have really good developmental outcomes so that, you know, sleep goes well down the track because you do hear that if you don't deal with what might be called sleep problems now, that you're child won't learn as well as they might otherwise Mm -hmm. you might hear this is often said to parents actually it might impact on their behavioral outcomes when they're starting school and indeed their cognitive outcomes when they start school this is unfortunately information that's given to parents it's actually not not the case and we could talk more about that in a bit but but you know the truth is I would hear this as I hear your story and and, and it's so much the story that, that you know, is brought to me over and over um, by parents. I just hear a woman absolutely wanting to do the right thing for her baby, yeah. um, for her child and indeed for her family because you also hear that this is best for family well-being mm-hmm. to, to put these particular boundaries in place around sleep to, to teach the baby to sleep. So really, I'd say we've got a, a systems problem where parents are getting this advice delivered really quite authoritatively as if it's evidence-based, mm-hmm. when in fact, all of that can be really quite rigorously contested. But then, you know, of course, we want to do the best thing by our baby. So, you know, whether or not we have a Taipei personality, you know, it actually is it, it ramps up anxiety. It does. It just makes yeah. us really worried and distressed because mm-hmm. actually the truth is it can be, you know, for well, we know from the research that for most babies it just doesn't decrease night waking. So in that sense it, it just doesn't work. And, and it shifts the focus from enjoyment of the days to, okay, to be a really good mother, I've got to get this happening around sleep. And that just, you know, that inevitably becomes the, the core structure around which we build the days. So I would say a great deal of, you know, the word iatrogenic, Renee, so a great deal of health professional-induced anxiety around sleep. And, of course, as health professionals, we're also just trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. This is what we've been told mm. is the way to responsibly help parents who who have questions around their baby's sleep or indeed who are struggling with their baby's sleep. So even as health professionals, of course, we're just trying to do the right thing by the parents that we care about. So, you know, it's kind of no one's fault, but it's it's a health system problem. And goodness, now, see, I could rave on about this because it really, I am raving on about it, <laughs> but it's it's historically constructed and it is highly gendered, Renee. Yes. There's just not been the kind of research focus, if you like, on these kinds of issues that so shape the days for parents. And and although not all primary carers are um, 
women and indeed not all parents are identifying as of binary gender. But let's say it often is the woman who's the primary carer in very early life. And the days <clears throat> the days are being but there hasn't been a research focus on how to deal with these sites of interaction, if you like, that matter so much. So we've talked breastfeeding, we've talked mm. unsettled babies, but but specifically sleep. Mm. And and the research that has been conducted is is done through specific lenses. So so there's not really good theoretical frames around the, the sleep training research. So there's a lot of things that haven't been been kind of rigorously interrogated, if you like, as the research is being set up. And then then the data is interpreted through particular lenses. So, so you know, the dominant sleep training lens and often run by researchers in either university or hospital settings because that's where there's more money yeah. or more money is able to be accessed for this sort of thing. And we know that very often research coming out of hospital settings or university settings doesn't translate into something that's that's kind of real and useful out here in the community where our parents are trying to deal with their child's sleep. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I was in that research industry for a decade, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just like it got to the point for me where I was like, "How is this being translated to the wider world?" Like, we're just juggling I mean I was white white lab coat kind of girl and um what did they call us you know the powder the powder lab <laughs> you know we're just tossing around test tubes but what is the impact that we're making on the community I yeah which is one of the reasons why I left <laughs> doing what you're doing yeah. yeah so Pam can you explain to us though what the two main factors are that are involved in infant sleep so you talk about it in your book. It's So it's the sleep pressure and the circadian clock. That's Can right. Can you explain right. to the listeners out there, what are those two factors, you know, what is it that we need to understand about those to kind of, you know, relax us a little bit and understand that, you know, these regimented finite schedules perhaps are not going to work for your child and your family? Yes. So, look, in 2007, the two-process understanding of the biology of sleep was first translated into the infant context. That is, that there were two biological sleep regulators that were relevant to all of us around sleep, but to babies and sleep. And, in fact, it was just in the years after that that I began to work with that into a, a kind of approach in the clinic that would really help parents with their baby's sleep. So the sleep-wake home is stat and the circadian clock. So do you want me to describe that in detail, Renee, or do you think we're across that? I honestly don't think a lot of people understand. I think I, I think a lot of people are perplexed as to the difference between infant sleep and adult sleep because I hear a lot of, yeah. oh, God, why are they only sleeping four hours at a time it's like well one there's feeding involved like let's tick that off and also you know bonding and things like that but it is it is very different to adult sleep yeah yep that's it so I suppose what's been absolutely unique internationally 
internationally really about the Possum's Sleep Program is that we took this understanding, which I'll open up in a sec, around how sleep is regulated and started to work with that in sort of very practical ways around how it could translate into making the days enjoyable, making sleep easy, workable sleep. And so it involves it that this sort of whole approach to sleep that we you know we've called and it's called in the the, the research from 2014 the first publications went out internationally we detail it but we call it the possum sleep program and so it's it is important for parents to understand these two biological sleep regulators which the sleep wake homeostat and the circadian clock as you said Renee so the sleep wake homeostat is is this system of neurohormones that rises when all of us are awake and then drop off when we sleep and actually drop off very quickly. So you mentioned cat naps very early on. You see, even just a few minutes drowsing, let's say at the breast, really takes the edge off that rising sleep pressure for an infant. So for myself, I wake in the mornings, the sleep pressure's really low, all day long, my sleep pressure's rising. And at, at, at let's say, 10 o'clock at night, my sleep pressure's really high mm-hmm. and I feel sleepy and I'll put my head down. The difference with, with infants is that the sleep pressure's rising much more quickly. So the daytime nap then just takes the edge off that rising sleep pressure. But we still want the sleep pressure to be nice and high at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, depending on the infant's individual sleep needs, if we're getting big, big blocks of sleep during the day, then that will disrupt the sleep pressure settings come nighttime. Then there's the circadian clock, which is the other sleep regulator which parents are probably more familiar with. It's set by the sun, actually. But it's it's important to to know then that that we want to keep the environmental cues of daylight, noise, activity really separate from the environmental cues of that big sleep at night. When we are still, you know, responding to the baby, eye-contacting, but around us there's darkness it's, you know, quieter, less active. Mm-hmm. And so the big sleeps during the day can also seriously disrupt the circadian clock because it's kind of like setting up a mini nighttime situation. Mm-hmm. And so the settings on the circadian clock alter and over time we can end up with unnecessarily disrupted sleep at night for that reason as well. So... So it's disruption to the sleep regulators that results in patterns of excessive night waking. Normal night waking, which you are also starting to touch on there, Renee, normal night waking, and I I always am a little bit sort of sensitive around how I deliver this information to parents because I can feel their hearts drop. But it is normal for a little person right throughout the first year of life, right into toddlerhood really, to wake every couple of hours at night. It's just that we want everyone back to sleep really easily. And we know that overall our breastfeeding women are getting as much sleep as 
parents who are needing to use formula, mm-hmm. just to, to mention. So it's not to do it's not to do with breastfeeding. It's developmentally normal night waking where a little person will surface up out of sleep and want comfort, that whole sensory package, and indeed if the bubby's being breastfed, the, the comfort of the breast. But if everyone gets back to sleep really quickly, then overall sleep should still be manageable. Not perfect, but manageable throughout this this um, early developmental phase of infancy and toddlerhood. Excessive night waking. So every couple of hours is normal. Excessive night waking is when we have patterns of that little person waking every, you know, 45 minutes, every hour. Sometimes families are dealing with runs of waking every half an hour. This is what, in, in the Possum Sleep Program, way back we decided to call excessive night waking. And it's there with the excessive night waking or a little one who's awake for a whole big block of time in the night or just doing all that groaning and grunting and writhing for hours in, in the night. This is, this is a sign of disruption to the biological sleep regulators. And, and that's where we, we um, want to come in and, uh, and offer a different way of making sense of our baby's sleep to repair the excessive night waking and get back to more manageable, developmentally normal night waking. Mm. Is this making sense, Renee? Yeah, absolutely. It, it does. Well, I just keep thinking back to my experience, which was mm. as soon as I tried to implement these long stretches of day sleep, Eva's sleep during the night just completely cactus, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, and, that's and we right. were told, oh, that's really normal, that's really normal, and I was like, okay, it's really normal. But I think one of the things that we always pass on to our mamas, I remember you were describing, it might be in your book or it might actually be in the training that I did with Renee, yeah. but I love the concept but it's not even a concept, it's pretty much a fact, that every child is like on a bell curve of sleep that they require in a 24-hour period and it's not maybe like 9, 11 hours down one end, 17 hours down the other end. And I love this phrase, your child will take the sleep that they need. That's right. I love that because it... To me, it takes the pressure off parents trying to force that sleep upon their child. And if a baby is tired, they will go to sleep. They really will. That's <laughs> you know? right. That's right. Um, and one of the, the, the that's right. We, we often have parents look at us in disbelief. So this is, you know, really all of those working in this space now who are starting to use our possum sleep program report back you know parents don't really believe it when we say when that sleep pressure is high enough your little one will fall to sleep wherever you know wherever you are whatever you're doing and they say not not my child not my child you don't know my child (laughs) and then as we as we put in place the strategies and of course it all does take a couple of weeks to really take effect it takes a couple of weeks to change sleep patterns but they come back absolutely astonished and say, I could not believe it. 
we were having a swimming class and he fell asleep in the pool. Or, you know, we were out at a cafe in, in the little high chair and he just fell asleep, little head down on the tray. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is not about in any way depriving our little ones of sleep. This is not about in any way being unkind to our babies, as you really well understand, Renate, but it's about returning to the biologically normal regulation of infant mm-hmm. sleep. It's trusting our little people's sleep regulators. So when we're working with the Possum Sleep Program, um, whether it's me, whether it's yourself, our NDC providers, or, or um, accredited practitioners more broadly, we start by just offering information around normal infant sleep, kind of stuff you were mentioning, but, you know, little pieces of information that can be incredibly helpful for families, like internationally, in the first 12 months of life, our babies are going to sleep later, you know, closer to parent bedtime, much closer to parent bedtime than they're expected let me say that again. So if we look internationally, our babies are going to sleep much closer to parent bedtime, whereas in our society, we have the idea that healthy infant sleep is 12 hours in the cot from 6.30pm, 7pm at night, for instance. And you can imagine how that works if you've got a low sleep need. Bubby, who really only needs nine hours total in a 24-hour period, it's, it's a recipe for, for distress, for sleep mm. distress within the family. So we'll communicate with families around uh, normal baby sleep and then start to look together at the steps that we need to take to deal with the excessive night waking that may have emerged. Mm-hmm. And... This will be um, depending on on um, what's happening within each unique family, but um, a baby's sensory needs become a very important consideration here. And again, Renee, this is a concept that that I developed up really, you know, in the two thousands, but started to deliver in the clinic in two thousand and eleven. And it comes out of, it's quite different to the concept of sensory needs that has been used by, say, our occupational therapists. The concept of sensory nourishment really was something that I pulled together out of the critiquing critiquing the emphasis in sleep training approaches on overstimulation. So way back then, I went to look at where this concept was coming from in the mm. research literature. And actually... You know, Renee, it wasn't an evidence. It, there was one very poorly conducted study way, way back. I think it was in the 1970s that was just continuously cited whenever mm. a piece of sleep training research referred to the concept of overstimulation. It, it, it was not research that was relevant at all, actually, to concepts of um, an infant's sensory needs. So that is, it was you know very methodologically weak. And... And, and what we had really was not an evidence-based concept, but something that had arisen in the 1950s and 1960s as part of scientific motherhood or the, the, the sort of approach to infant care that came after the war years, strongly influenced by the first wave of behaviourism that was coming out from 
the US with Skinner and Pavlov. So the concept of overstimulation is not evidence-based, but belongs, I've got, I often will tell this in, in edu education of other others, other health professionals, I show this lovely project book from from when I was 14 years old. Yes, at I remember school this. here in Quito. Did I tell you this? I, I so, recall this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Mothercraft was compulsory and the boys, lucky them, got to go off and do carpentry. But we had to sit through this mother class. And and so, you know, there it is, 1974, do not allow your child's nervous system, your baby's nervous system to be overstimulated. Don't don't jiggle or rock the baby because it overstimulates the nervous system. If you want a calm and happy baby, don't overstimulate your baby. And, of course, this was all wrapped up with the routine-based approach to both feeding and sleep. So it's really a philosophy mm -hmm. that, that arose in those post-war decades. Then with the advent of evidence-based medicine in the 1980s, you know, uh, researchers began to take this package that already existed, the sleep training package, and used particular lenses to start to investigate it. And when I published my systematic review with my colleague in, um, I think that one was also 2014, by then there were about 43 studies internationally that, that looked at various iterations because people adapted a little bit, but, but they're all using the basic tenets of sleep training. So there were 43 studies internationally and really no evidence that it decreased night waking in the first 12 months. Mm -hmm. And there have been other systematic reviews and indeed one that looks at randomised controlled trials and we're still not seeing a decrease in night waking. So it's, it's more a philosophy Yep. sleep training actually absolutely i think i have yeah. pulled a figure from like what was it 2017 that the infant sleep industry had an estimated worth of 325 us us million dollars <laughs> there and and that's the thing though like it seems mm. to me like we've we found a gadget an app some sort of you know, tool or whatever it is, schedule when quite possibly we should just be tuning in with our own motherly instincts and thinking it's okay, my baby's okay. You know, like I, I was in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is normal. 45 minutes is normal. We're just going to continue on with our everyday you know, well, see, program. five minutes or ten minutes might be normal, really. Just exactly, we don't have to pay attention. That's yeah. right. It's just that I yep. guess that societal pressure of, oh no, that's not right. That's. I, I did have I put out a um an Instagram questionnaire earlier today, and if anyone wanted to ask questions, <laughs> someone asked me to ask you, what do you think of the snoo? Oh, the little device that, that rocks babies. Yes. Well, we have to be careful because it does set up a mini nighttime situation or a, a kind of womb-like situation where we can set up an environment where a little person may be more likely to go to sleep. The sleep pressure may not be quite that high, but, you know, it, it, it risks putting in place more sleep during the day right. that will over time disrupt 
the sleep patterns at night disrupt the circadian clock and the and the um, sleep wake homeostat. So that's one one thought I have. It's not that I'm against the use of devices like this, but but they're also not magic bullets. Yeah. What's the word? Silver, Silver bullet. Yeah. The way you know, and, and of course, as parents, we just naturally hope mm-hmm. that, that we might be able to use something like this and and not be having to deal with with sleep deprivation. I think the answer, though, lies really in how we work with that little person sleep regulators, not not in how we use, you know, various cots or devices like the SNOO. Yeah. So we we need to be mindful that that um, there is an industry out there that you know that that we can make all of this a lot easier and indeed a lot cheaper than it currently is. And I certainly wouldn't be promoting the SNOO, but if a family comes in and they're using the SNOO, I'd just be careful about trying to grow the amount the baby's sleeping during the day in a way that could actually, in time, make the night so much more difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great. Thank you for your comments on that. My pleasure. Um, we're going to switch gears now and we're going to talk about you've already touched on it, that kind of sensory experience for children. Boredom for babies. It is something that I personally think is very underrated, particularly with children around crying and fussing and things like that. And and when I bring it to people's attention, you know, mums that I'm working with, they, they say, oh, you know, she's just crying and it's not like a big cry but, like, you know, she's a bit fussy and my my go-to every single time is take them outside. Yes. It's like a circuit breaker. If, yes. Like, you know, if it's the middle of the day, take them outside, show them some trees, put them in the grass, you know, take their socks off and, and, and let their feet go in the grass. And I think, you know, we're... I think we're so fixated on feeding and sleep that we miss that sensory experience. And if you get trapped like I did in that cycle of we must be at home between this time and this time for the sleep and and we somewhat miss out on activities and experiences, we're missing out on that sensory kind of experience as well. Can you talk a bit about sensory boredom and why why is this so important what is Mm. I feel like this is a missing piece to a lot of parents and and their babies I think you're right Renee so for instance we're dealing as NDC practitioners or providers with an unsettled bubby a bubby who's crying and fussing you'll remember we use the five domain approach Mm -hmm. Where we're certainly excluding health problems, we're looking after the well-being of the parents. But then we've got these three neurobehavioural domains: feeds and sleep, as as you say, very often uh, very foregrounded. And then this other really, really important domain that's still not well understood in our world of that little person's sensory needs. And it's absolutely true that really from birth our babies are laying down 
neural templates, so pathways in the brain, in direct response to rich and changing input across all their senses. And that includes vestibular stimulation through space, um, kinesthetic stimulation, proprioception, but, you know, what they can see and smell and taste and hear and feel on the skin. And from about uh, two weeks after the birth, actually, it's as though our little ones wake up and and this phenomenon that you've just so well described, dialing up because there's not enough going on inside the four walls of the home to meet mm. their sensory needs really starts to, to be a problem for, for, for many families. And as you say, parents can test this out by taking that little one as they dial up simply into the external environment outside the home. And very often they'll say, that little person dialed down as soon as we stepped out the door. So I suppose, Renee, I had the, the privilege of starting my professional life as a GP, community-controlled First Nations health service. And, uh, and so very early in my professional career, I was, um, and this was back, back in the, the, the 1980s, late 1980s, I was exposed to more traditional First Nations infant care practices and, and I saw myself in, in opportunities to be in more traditional First Nations contexts, the incredibly rich sensory motor environments that their little ones um, were being raised in really, you know, from um, very early in life and began to understand just how relatively impoverished from a sensory point of view our interior environments can be relative to, to these, you know, talking more broadly now, more traditional and evolutionary environments that had much more experience in the, in the complexity of the outdoor world. So... So when I started to look closely at why babies in our society, you know, cr cried as much as they did, it became really clear to me that, that there was a whole absence of understanding around the importance of sensory motor nourishment for the well-being of our babies, actually. And our babies will dial up and signal to us, complain if they're not receiving the kind of sensory motor input that their little brains hungering for. So early on, I began to talk about the two hungers. There's clearly the hunger for milk, but there's, there's importantly, not quite as life-threatening, but, but a very powerful biological drive, powerful biological hunger for rich and changing sensory nourishment. You might think of it as environmental enrichment, mm -hmm. but really in, in sort of practical terms for families with babies, it, it just means creating a life for that primary carer outside the four walls of the home in a way that meets her needs. So if she's got lots of social contact happening, you know, if, if, if the primary carer, the mother, let's say, has lots of social contact, if she's meeting her needs to be out walking and, mm -hmm. and moving and the cover's taken off, you know, we have to be sensible, of course, but, but basically <laughs> covers off prams and strollers, you know, 
our little people love that, being in the outdoor world or just visiting family, visiting friends, going to the parents' groups, um, creating a life that meets the primary carer's need for a sort of enjoyable social engagement so that the primary carer isn't bored, actually. Mm-hmm. Then, in fact, that inadvertently, almost accidentally, meets our little person's need for rich and changing sensory nourishment. And the days seem so much easier then because the little person is more likely to be dialed down. So you you, you know, Renee, that we talk about the two tools in these early months of life. Milk, of course, and then rich and changing sensory nourishment. And sensory nourishment becomes, it's absolutely huge all the way through infancy and toddlerhood. And we frame it differently as, as our little ones move into childhood, but it's 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 very important and not well understood, as you say. Mm. I um, completely agree, though. Like I, I, particularly around COVID lockdowns and, and things like that, we were fortunate enough to be part of the permitted worker status in Victoria, and so. We did see a lot of mums who didn't leave the house very often and, you know, commonly would tell us about, you know, just crying and fussing and things like that. Mm. Mm. And it broke my heart because not only was the mum suffering from the mental health Mm. result of, of that, but you could see the child as well who was clearly craving to just be around other children, you know. They were doing yeah. Yeah. mothers' groups via Zoom. You know, that, like, yeah. Yeah. I understand that it is better than nothing, but it also is not enough. Oh. <laughs> and so, right. like, with all of our suggestions, it was get outside, get a picnic blanket. When you're hanging out the washing, put them under the washing line, you know, so they can see what's, what's happening. And... You know, I know people are still quite cautious with COVID and things like that. So just getting out with the pram and taking the kids That's to the it, park. just anything outside the home. Yeah. You're, you're quite right, Renee. It, um, yeah, it, it just helps that little person dial down because their, their needs for that rich and changing environmental experience are being met. COVID has been a particular um, challenge. I think we talked about this previously. Yeah. But, yes, I I completely agree with what you're saying. Mm. We're going to bring this all together with I'm going to read out a section of a blog article that you recently wrote. Um, People can find this on your website, your your own website. Yes, um, I've just got a new one out, actually. Yes, I've seen the new photos. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. they look great. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'll put all the links in the show notes so that it'll be fine. But your blog article is titled, Why Do Women Still Receive So Much Conflicting Advice About Baby yes. Care? Um, yes. So I'm going to read out for International Women's Day. Yes, yep. it was a very yep. good blog post. I, I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, thank you. So I've got a passage that I wanted to read and then I have a question and we'll we'll bring it all, we'll wrap up with, with this one, I think. Okay, so you've written, quote, there are many reasons, biological and psychosocial, why 20% of new Australian mothers and 10% of new fathers experience postnatal depression and anxiety. As if it wasn't hard enough before, 
the lockdowns of 2020 to 2021 have made baby care even tougher. But our health system doesn't yet acknowledge that one fundamental reason women suffer so much worry and distress after the birth of their baby, the one thing that could be changed, actually, with minimal cost, is that we as health professionals lack the clinical skills required to help make a family's life with their baby more enjoyable. Oh, I've got so many goosebumps just written. And it also, like, makes me tear up a little bit because I guess we were at the coalface as well, helping mums and dads, families through all of this. It's really, really hard being there for them and taking on that emotional load with them as well. You would absolutely know all about that. So my question to you is, because I am I'm all about this postpartum revolution. I think we all need to get on board. I've joined a working group where we're going to try and work out how it is that doulas can be integrated into the system better and have more awareness in the community about what we can do. Here in Tasmania, it is very, very difficult at the moment for newborn mothers. They are so scared in the hospitals here that they've actually cancelled all the birthing classes. So, and they're not online either. So women are walking into a birthing suite with no knowledge of what or where or how or when. And so I think we really need to kind of work out what it is that we are doing for these mothers because you're absolutely right from your blog article. It's like we are setting them up to fail, you know, like what are we doing about this? So my big picture question to you is if you had a money pit and the ears of government and healthcare, what would your dream roadmap look like? to help these families? Mm. I know it's a really big question and we probably could well, do a whole podcast on it. If, if, I, if I was the boss and I had lots Pam, of money. Pam, if you, well, were the boss, if you were the boss and you were calling the shots, what is it mm. that you think or what are, what are the first steps you think that we need to take in order for, you know, women's health research to be at the forefront for us to which would then hopefully channel into community and helping helping others deal with newborn life mm. well that's that's a, a quite a wonderful question i suppose uh, what i what i've been trying to do renee with Possums and Co. So founding the charity in 2013 to bring these programs into the world, both in research publications and translated into the clinic and helping parents, you know, one-on-one. Um, -on -one. I suppose you can see that I've obviously thought from a clinical point of view, the things that we're pulling together in neuroprotective developmental care are the kinds of changes that are required clinically on the ground. And breastfeeding actually is right at the heart of all of this. Mm -hmm. And and I think if we, we in no way want to be excluding, not for a minute, our formula feeding parents. But if we can get breastfeeding right at the very start, then many 
parents who are desperate, those women who are desperate to breastfeed and sort of walk over hot coals trying to breastfeed, you know, we, we should be able to help them better than we do. And that has flow-on effects then for, you know, unsettled infant behaviour. And the Possum Sleep Program is actually, even though it's for all parents, regardless of how they feed their baby and, and right up through into toddlerhood, it's actually developed up through the same frames, evolutionary frames, complexity science or dynamic system frames as the work that we're doing with breastfeeding. So, uh, you know, unsettled baby behaviour, sleep, breastfeeding, all being interpreted through evolutionary and complexity science frames. Now, so I guess I would argue that this is, I do have the view that this is the way forward. It's a real paradigm shift across each of those domains. It makes sense of the science in really radically different ways. So the advice that we're giving in those domains is often, you know, a real flip, like upside down flip to the advice that parents are getting in breastfeeding, in sleep challenges, and when their baby's crying and fussing. But I have the view that if we can bring these this whole paradigm shift to the fore, then we will significantly impact upon rates of postnatal depression. Now, from a systems point of view, let's say I was the boss and I, I had all the money. Well, you know, to think that far ahead is is a big dream. What if I even just start by thinking halfway there? Yeah. What if every parent actually had the choice of the NDC programs? What if, what if our, you know, wonderfully freely accessible maternal and child health services, I mean, this is internationally fabulous that we can offer um, freely available maternal and child health services around Australia. So I would be bringing people from across disciplines together around a table and, and actually having conversations around the lenses that we apply to the interpretation of research because there's no doubt that different disciplines are using different lenses. In fact, the whole area of what it is to, to, to offer an evidence-based program really needs to be pulled apart uh, for all of us as, as health professionals because none of us are particularly trained in how to read and make sense of research. The, the label evidence-based is used as a marketing tool. It's it's just everybody has to be evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's it's lost integrity as, as a label, if you like. What is it to be evidence-based? Yeah. What is it to get your theoretical frames in place? Because the, the possums programs are only just developing up a body of evaluations, of studies. But we have truly, I would propose the strongest theoretical frames of any approach to infant care internationally. Evidence-based medicine in the early days, I think, you know, those who are sort of thinking within the evidence-based medicine space, so those who, who as researchers are actually interested in, in what it is to be practising in an evidence-based way, will acknowledge that, that there has not been an appropriate um, emphasis on on 
getting those theoretical frames in place, which means that a lot of research is set up in a way that's doomed to be methodologically weak and to not contribute meaningfully. Mm. So we've got to have really strong theoretical frames. And I don't think people would argue with, with me when I say that we need to understand infant care through the lens of what our babies have, from an evolutionary point of view, evolved to expect. And I don't think people would argue that we need to be thinking about the infant in the context of dynamic systems and complexity. Those are the lenses that I apply to my work and out of which, you know, since since 2011, really, we've been developing up and delivering neuroprotective developmental care. And yet it's still viewed as, as, as quite radical. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's increasing penetration, but you can see I'd be wanting to bring together all of those who are leaders across the, 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 the multiple disciplines operating within the care of families mm-hmm. and starting to look at how we can actually upskill our providers in a way that operates out of these theoretical frames. So drawing on the evidence, but, but you know, repairing some of these socio-cultural biases that have caused so much disruption to our experiences in early life. So from a public health point of view, now see, I'm on a roll here, Renee, from a public <laughs> health point of view, we have the resources in Australia. I actually don't think it's a problem of resources. You know, we do invest quite substantial amounts of money into our maternal and child health services. So the, so the problem is, is the training behind that. The problem is how we make sense of the research and how we actually frame the clinical programs that we're delivering, how, how we, what sort of theoretical frames are we using. And, and currently, the frames are highly medicalised. And of course, there is a place for really, really good medical care, but we're inappropriately medicalising our families. We're using these outdated, last century, first wave behavioural frames. We're actually uh, causing, as a health system, unnecessary distress, disruption, anxiety to families. And we could change this. Uh, Absolutely. And I, well, for me, the take-home message is knowledge is power. And so with knowledge, hopefully, you know, people can make better informed decisions and, you know, choose, you know, a better strategy for themselves and their family um, and their, their little people in their lives. Pam, we have run out of time. I knew <laughs> this is, I feel like there's always going to be another part to our discussion. Well, um, I'd, I'd be happy to, Renee. Oh, thank um, you. And as you continue mm. to churn out the papers, you did another huge review that I saw. I haven't got through it all yet. Thank you I, for <laughs> noticing that. Thank you for noticing that. You know, it, it's very interesting. One of the problems now with the open access articles is that, and this is, goodness, this this is that whole huge topic of how the market market forces um, shape the experiences actually of our families on the ground and, and research. So, so it actually costs now for open access articles and frankly, who would who would um, 
be publishing <laughs> anywhere else other than open access now. But it, it'll cost something like $3,000, $3,500. Wow. So, whereas when I first started to publish, everything had to be 2,000 words, 2,500 words. Now, you know, Possums and Co. can't afford to be breaking those papers down into yeah. two or 3,000 word length articles so I have to write because it's it's just what our charity can afford I am publishing these major papers where it's all in one um and in my well I I I, in my mind actually the the latest trilogy is is really you know doing a whole paradigm shift around Mm -hmm. the way we think of these very common breastfeeding problems but that is a whole other topic, isn't it, Renee? But thank you for noticing that it oh, came my, out. My pleasure. I'll, I'll include that link to the paper in the show notes as well. Mm. But, yes, I haven't completed it. I think it's 29 pages. In a I know, and it's not bedtime reading, you see. It's not bedtime reading, but I am a bit of a science junkie, so it's on the to-do list. But I wanted to ask, do you have any other books in the works or is it just papers at the moment? No, well, I, I do. So for, for a couple of years now, I've been writing Breastfeeding Stripped Bare, which is an approach to breastfeeding that's stripped bare of unnecessary uh, medications, surgery, exercises, aids. Even though there's a place for, for all of those on occasions, we we are in a space where breastfeeding support is uh, really weighed down with huge amounts of unnecessary interventions. As as everyone tries to find a way through for 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 the woman, mm-hmm. and and so you'll see within Milk and Moon, I'm starting to bring out parts of breastfeeding stripped bare. But what happened was that I I decided. Really, because there's, you know, I can't put too much detail in a in a, a book that's facing the public. That I I needed to get the evidence base out in these in these articles. So over the last eighteen months or so, I've had the five. I just finished the proofs to the last one yesterday. So there's five articles that 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 really lay out this this paradigm shift really in the way we think about helping women through to the other side of of the, the breastfeeding problems that, that so commonly can arise. So, yes, short answer is yes, it's on its way. But in the meantime, we're bringing out some of this into Milk and Moon anyway, and then perhaps in time um, um, I'll bring it out hard copy. Amazing. I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks, Renee. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time again. I hope this is not our last chat. I don't think it will be. No, I'd be happy to talk again. I I enjoy our conversations. Yes, very popular (laughs) episodes. And that speaks to how much value you bring to each episode. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Thanks, Renee. (laughs) My pleasure. All right, then, until next time. Thanks. See you. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at 
ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.